Well, uh, many of you have flown on an airplane before, I'm sure. Um, the reason I know that, because many of you came overseas, and unless you swam across the ocean, you came on an airplane. When you are on an airplane and the flight is smooth, you rarely think of the pilot. In fact, there are times I'm sure that you got on the airplane, you got off the airplane, however long that flight is, you, you did not think once about the pilot or the co-pilot or anyone else in charge of that plane. Right, you're flipping through Air Mall magazine, you're watching a movie, you're sleeping, or maybe you're trying to make a friend who's sitting next to you. That's what you're doing. But as soon as there is some kind of turbulence, right, and the seatbelt sign goes on, fasten your seatbelt, right away, your thoughts are concentrated on the pilot. Everyone is thinking the same thing. Does he really know what he's doing? Right? Did he fall asleep at his controls? Uh, is he even qualified sometimes, we think? Is he even qualified? I wonder what kind of qualification or what kind of education my pilot right now, who's flying me 33,000 feet up in the air, has gone through. Is he qualified to take me through this thing? Well, oftentimes we tend to ask similar questions when we are going through suffering and trials in life. When everything is okay, we're like, everything is okay. Everything is smooth. We're just going as is. We're enjoying life. But when things get turbulent, we wonder, is everything okay up there? Right? That's, that's what we tend to ask. Uh, we, we may even look up at heavens and Wonder, is God still on his throne and in control of our lives? And oftentimes we begin to doubt. Oftentimes we have all kinds of unanswered questions when it comes to our lives in the midst of suffering. You know, reflecting on the death of his wife, C.S. Lewis, he wrote the following. He says, quote, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. I mean, have you ever been there? Maybe you're there this morning, questioning God's love for you, questioning God's goodness towards you this morning in the midst of whatever trial you find yourself in. Open with me back to Romans chapter 8. This is, as we were noting, perhaps the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible, and this greatest chapter was written exclusively for God's people to be assured that they are God's people. We come to a set of verses this morning, verses 28 through 30, that are um, some of the most well-known verses, most quoted verses. We have those verses memorized, but they're also some of the most disputed verses in the entire Bible. These verses, friends, are intended here by God 
within this entire context of Romans chapter 8, they are verses that are intended to give great hope, great comfort. They're not there for us to dispute and go back and forth about. They are there to comfort the believer. For those who love the Lord, these verses are meant to add another layer of confidence to the layers that he already added in Romans chapter 8. Remember, we we began this chapter with this confident assertion that there is now no condemnation. And we will end this chapter here in just a few short weeks with this declaration that there is now no separation. This entire chapter is written to, to anchor our assurance that we can never be separated from the love of God But the question is, why do we experience then these trials? Why do we experience these trials? And as we studied last time in verses 26 and 27, if at times we don't know how to pray, but we have this assurance that the Spirit is praying for us, He's interceding always according to the will of God, and His prayers are always heard, and they are always answered, why do we still have unanswered prayer, quote-unquote? And it is in reply to this question that these next set of verses are written. And so as we unpack them and next week as well, may the Spirit give us comfort and I pray that we would be assured of God's love and and of our security in Christ because that's why they're here for. We don't want to argue about them. We just want to understand them within the context of what the Lord is doing. So verse 26, we'll begin there. We'll read through verse 30, and we will look at verses uh, 28 and 29. In the same way, Paul writes, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So the main thought I want us to take away from this passage is this Christian believer, one who loves the Lord, one who loves God, be certain that God works all things for your good and for his glory. Because he planned it from eternity past into eternity future. That's really the the theme of verses 28 through 29. Be certain that God works all things for your good and his glory. Because it's just an unfolding plan that was set in motion from eternity past into eternity future. I want us to take these verses and we'll divide them into three main points to help us better understand what Paul is teaching here. Two of the points we will cover today. The third and final point we will 
By God's grace, if he allows us to meet next Sunday, we will discuss the third point. Usually we take these verses uh, so far, right, in Romans, and we take this, whatever the first verse is, and we work sequentially through it, but I'd like us to, to do something different for the sake of emphasis and clarity here this morning. I want us to first look at God's purpose for us in Christ, which is found in verse 29 in the middle. Smack down in the middle right there, verse 29, God's purpose for us in Christ. And I think there's a good reason for us to focus there first. Then we will go up or back to verse 28. We'll look at verse 28 and consider God's promise for us in Christ. So God's purpose first, and then God's promise for us. And next week, if the Lord wills, we will look at verses, the rest of verse 29 and 30, and we will look at God's plan for us in Christ. I was trying to make this work and put it all together in one sermon but I'm not the Lord, and I cannot work that together in one sermon, so we will take time and uh, unpack this final point next Sunday. So first, I want us to look right there in verse 29 and consider God's purpose. What is God's purpose? And Paul gives us the answer right there. God's purpose is to glorify his son in making us like Jesus. God's purpose is to glorify his son in making us like Jesus Christ. Many of us know verse 28. Many of us have verse 28 memorized. No doubt they were instances, you know, funerals for instance, right? Where we sometimes are quick to be theologically correct. And as we go through the procession or the line and, and instead of just sometimes just hugging, you know, the grieving family and and, you know, just being silent, we would utter some things like, yay, all things work together for good. And it sounds great, and it is true, and, and we want to affirm this thing, but sometimes, you know, it's better to just hug the person and to walk by and say, I'm praying for you, we're here for you, we love you. We know that God works all things together. But oftentimes, you know, um, and, and, and silly at times, downright wrong, right? We give various explanation or application to this particular verse. So for us to, to make sense and to see how God applies this, right? We need to go back and we need to see what is this good that he's talking about in verse 26, 28. God works all things, right, for our good. What is it? How would God define the good of verse 28. Well, in the middle of verse 29, Paul states the ultimate purpose. For God's children, as he rescues them from hell and as he makes them his own, from the creation, in fact, from before creation of the world, God chose to save sinners so that, look at verse 29, so that we would become conformed to the image of his son, so that we would become conformed to the image of his son. And our conformity to Christ's likeness results in his glory so that, he continues, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So notice the goal of salvation. Notice the purpose of salvation. It is not for us to be with Jesus in heaven, necessarily. 
right? We are not saved to escape hell and to be in heaven. That is not the goal. The goal is for us to look like Jesus, for us to be restored in the image of God. That's what verse 29 says, for us to be conformed, right? To become, you have it italicized, at least in the NASB. So to become is missing in the original text. So basically, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, conformed to the image of his son. Conform means to become like. It means to, to become the same as someone or something. And then he says the image, the image of his son. And, and, and this idea of the image, it reaches back all the way to Genesis chapter one, all the way to the first chapter in the Bible where God creates men, first uh, chapter, Genesis 1:26. God creates men in his image. When he creates Adam and Eve in his image, but he failed. Adam failed to fulfill God's purpose for men. He was created to bear his image, but because of sin, that image was marred. He, he, he doesn't behave in the way that God intended him to behave. He doesn't rule in the way that God intended him to rule because sin had entered. And now the point here is Christ enters the scene. Christ comes and Paul already in Romans chapter five said that Christ is the second Adam. Why is he second Adam? Because first Adam failed. Jesus comes now as the second Adam and he succeeds where first Adam failed. And so Jesus is the true image of God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, for instance, Paul writes, and at the very end of the verse, he says, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who Christ is the image of God. Colossians chapter one, which we studied a couple of years earlier, right? Colossians 1, 15, he, referring to Christ, is the image of God of the invisible God, Christ. So only by becoming like Jesus can we be who God created us to be. And that is the entire goal, that is the entire purpose of God reaching from eternity past into eternity future and saving a people for himself to make us, what? To be conformed to the image of his son. Now, the question is, when do we become like Jesus? When do we become like Jesus? When does this conformity, right, takes place? And no doubt, according to many verses in Scripture, that <clears throat> this conformity takes place when we are saved, immediately as we are saved. Many passages suggest that. I'll give you two, Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Paul writes, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who listen, is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So that true self is right now being renewed because of the spirit into, right, to a true knowledge of the one, into the image of the one who created him. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul adds this, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This transformation happens all the time if you are a believer. We are being transformed just as from the Lord, he says, the spirit. So now we are being conformed into the image of Christ slowly, very slowly. In fact, that's the very point of verse 28, and, and we'll get to it. We'll, we'll get to it here in just a second. And, and you might be wondering now if the whole purpose and the goal is for us to be conformed into the image of Christ, then what does that look like? What are we being conformed to? Like, we always say, hey, you, you want to look more like Jesus because that's God's intent for you. But how does Jesus look? What are we supposed to look like? And we can have a series of sermons on this. But I just want us to maybe just consider one point. Um, I want to bring you to Colossians. If you can turn with me to Colossians. I already quoted the beginning of this passage. But Colossians chapter 3. I want to read beginning with verse 10. The verse I already quoted. But we'll, we'll continue to read. And follow along with me in just for a few verses. And Paul writes this, and have put on a new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on the heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Look with me what verse 11 indicates. He says, Christ is all and in all. And since that's the case, then we should live as people for whom Christ became all. We should be displaying Christ who lives in us. How? And then immediately Paul jumps to verse 12 and he says, here's how you do it by putting on Christ, by putting him on. In verse 12, when we are kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, loving, we look like Christ. Because that's what he says in Romans. He says, put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That's God's goal. That's his ultimate purpose in making us look more like him. But go back with me to Colossians or to Romans chapter 8 and, and just consider here context, right? to the point of the immediate context, our final transformation into the image of Christ will take place in the end. So this is what I think Paul has in mind here. This, this conformity into the image of Christ is eschatological, which means it's looking forward to that final day when we will die and be translated into glory or when Christ comes and transforms our bodies into a different body. Right? Our final destiny is the final transformation into the glory of Christ because that's what he says in verse 29. He also predestined, he determined your destiny and your destiny is that you will be conformed to the image of his son. It's guaranteed. That's why this is a comforting truth. It's not the truth to bicker about, it's to, to marvel at. Wow, you set us apart and this is your goal, that we are going to look like Jesus. Philippians 
In 21, Paul writes, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't stop there and he says, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. But we said here, look back at at your point number one, that God's purpose for us in Christ is to glorify his son in making us like Jesus. It's to glorify his son. Where, where do we see that? Well, look at verse, end of verse 29. To become conformed to the image of his son so that there will, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So that there's a higher purpose, there's a higher goal. And what is that goal? What is that purpose? It's the glory and it is the preeminence of Jesus Christ must be number one is what this verse says so that he would be firstborn. And and firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus as God's son had the beginning or points to this, his initial beginning. No, that's not what this means. The main idea of the firstborn in, in this particular culture is that of supremacy or preeminence. It's that of higher sort of rank. The, the firstborn son, he inherited special rights and, and special privileges in the family so that he would be unique in that sense from all the other family members. And so here, what he is saying is, we are conformed to the purposes that we would become like Jesus so that Jesus would be number one. That's what he said in Colossians 1.15, right? He is the firstborn of creation of all creation doesn't mean that he was created but that he existed before creation because the very next verse says through him all things were made so god's goal for our salvation friends church beloved is bound up in god's purpose to make much of his son of jesus christ god saved you so that christ would be number one among the saved that's what this means uh, among many brethren, it's, it's pointing to this, this congregation of believers that will be gathered together around the throne of God, and Jesus would be number one. He paves the way. He resurrects first, and then everyone else resurrects. And he is going to have this preeminent place. God saved us so that we would make much of his son, not just here, but for all eternity. The spotlight, friends, is always on the son. He is first, he is is preeminent. We are not to make much of ourselves in this life or the next, because this is God's goal for us. And we need to remember this goal. The question is, is this your goal? If this is God's goal for us to be conformed to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is this our goal in our life? As a child of God, are, we, are you driven by this goal? Or are you pursuing other objectives in your life? Because this is very important. This matters here. Because the objectives that you pursue in your life will matter how you interpret verse 28. It's very, very important. If your goal is to grow in Christ-like character, then you will interpret everything in your life through this grid 
and you will pursue it. You will understand it. You will love the Lord even in the most difficult of trials and situations. So the first point here that we need to see is God's purpose for our life and death, because it translates us into glory, is to glorify his son by making us like Jesus. But in light of this eternal purpose, I want us to look at God's promise now, which, which comes in verse eight, uh, 28, God's promise for us in this life. God's promise is this, number two, is that he works all things to accomplish the said purpose. God's promise is that I work all things in your life to make sure that it accomplishes what I purpose for your life. If you recall in our last week's study in verses 28 and 27, look with me there, we discussed this human struggle that we have, um, often experience of just not knowing God's sovereign plan, and so we don't know how to pray, how, how, how this specific situation right, relates um, to, to God's sovereign plan, and so we are clueless, and Paul calls that weakness. We're weak, and we do not know how to pray as we should, but notice the contrast between verse 26 and verse 28. Paul affirms, friends, that we actually do know something, We know something. He says, we do not know how to pray in verse 28, but we know, and we know. What do we know? Paul says that in our weakness, we don't know how to pray. We don't understand how every single puzzle piece fits into this great landscape, right, of God's masterpiece, but, but we know that God has a sovereign plan. We know that God has a picture, This is our comfort. We know this because he revealed it to us. God has a purpose and he works according to his plan. I want us to consider four observations from this verse, verse 28. We know, number one, is that, friends, we must start with God. We must start with God. To understand this promise, we must start with God. We cannot view this verse or or these set of verses here, verses 28 through 30, um, from our own human perspective. We must view them from God's perspective, his sovereign perspective. This verse starts with God and it ends with God. Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together. For good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. It starts with God, it ends with God, and everything that's contained is permeated by God. Everything in the life of the believer starts with God, it ends with God, and it is permeated by God. It's his plan. God is the major and main player, and he providentially works all things for our good. Why? because he is pursuing his purpose. Look at at the end of verse 28, according to purpose. Whose purpose? His purpose. We must remember that it all starts, ends, and right in the middle, it's all about God. Number two, we must understand the meaning of all things. What does it mean when Paul says, and we know that God causes all things, all things, 
Friends, Paul has an eternal perspective in view here, not temporal. What are all things? He, he doesn't say some things, you know, most things or, or good things, some things that will turn out all right for you. No, he says all things. What are these all things? Well, in the context here, if we, if we look at beginning with verse 18, right, all things, it includes the sufferings of this present time. That's all things. And then if we look down a little bit, it includes tribulation or distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and, and peril and sword of verse 35. All things, everything. All things include all the big things, all the good things and all the difficult things, all the little things in your life, all things like hard things, yes. Like bitter things, yes. Struggling things, yes. Are grieving things, yes, all things, all things. And, and you might be wondering, maybe right now, what about sinful things? Like are, are sinful things included in this picture here? Beloved, all things either mean all things or nothing. And, and Paul is very exhaustive here. And if all things, then all sinful things as well. Don't we believe in the sovereign God? Sovereign God who upholds everything, who works all things. Like Ephesians chapter one, verse 11 says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. Notice who works all things after the counsel of his will. Same exact thing, all things, everything. Nothing escapes his notice. He works all things. God has a purpose for all things, including sinful things, like sick things and, and doubtful things and angry things and hurtful things and you fill in the blank, whatever thing you're going through right now, that includes in this category of all things. I'm reminded of, of Genesis chapter 50, right? Genesis chapter 50 is Joseph's um, conversation with his brothers and he says to them, reflecting on 20 plus years of experience, and he says, listen, you meant it for evil. Uh, Genesis 50, 20, you meant it for evil. You had an evil, angry heart, and you sold me, and you lied about me. You did it all for evil. You sinned against me. You sinned against dad. You sinned, ag you meant it for evil, but... God meant it for good. God meant it for, why? Because he has a purpose and nothing, friends, nothing in this life escapes his sovereign purpose. His brothers, their sin did not prevent God from accomplishing his purpose for Israel. In fact, he uses this sin in order to accomplish his purpose for his nation. He causes even sinful things in your life and in my life to work together for good. Friends, think about this incident again in Joseph's life. Um, over 22 years have passed before Joseph found out how God caused his brother's sin to work together for his good. Over 22 years. And it might take you a year 
It might take you five, it might take you 10 years, it might take you 100 years, or it might even take for you to enter eternity before you understand how God causes all things to work together for good. But the point is, he causes all things to work together for good. Now, there's a caution here that I want to offer. We should never, friends, those who love God should never, ever, ever think, should never have this sinful thought that God will work things together for good, therefore I can do whatever I want to do. I can sin however I want to sin. If you have that thought, you do not love God. That's what Romans 6 says. You do not love him. How can you who died to sin still think this way? And scripture records severe consequences for those who sinned greatly, like, for instance, David. But beloved, the reality of the situation is we all sin. We all sin. And he uses even our sin and sin committed against us by someone else to teach us many lessons and to conform us, right, into the image of Christ. Two things. We must start with God. Number two, we must understand the meaning of all things. Number three, we must understand the meaning of good. We must understand the meaning of good. Think about this. How do we usually define good? You know, we think of good as something that improves our situation in life, right? Like it was bad, now it's good. How are you feeling? Good. Why? I got a job. Improved your situation in life, right? How are you feeling? Great. Wow. Got rid of cancer. I'm cancer-free now. Improved my situation in life. Right? It's something that makes better as we define it. But is that how good is defined in this context? No. That is not how good is defined in this context because as we already seen in verse 29, what God's purpose for us is, Right? God's purpose for us is to glorify his son by making us like his son, like Jesus Christ. So the good, notice the good of verse 28 is the Christ-likeness of verse 29. The good of verse 28 is Christ-likeness in verse 29. God causes all things to conform us, to shape us, to mold us like Jesus. That is the ultimate good. The ultimate good is not our health. It is not our high-paying jobs. It is not even our marriage. It is not our kids. It is not even our ministry. It's not what we do for the Lord. That is not the ultimate good. The good is God's purpose. The glorification of his son in making us like Jesus Christ. That's the good. And friends, God takes your trials and he takes your successes and he takes your joys and he takes all of your pains in life. And like this baker, he just mixes in all of these ingredients and he he blends them into one masterpiece and that is Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. He does it. And so when we think of this good, it isn't that, for instance, your relationship broke off with someone and we say, you know, don't worry. 
don't worry. God will use this situation to give you a better relationship. Or like Mike was praying, there are some brothers who got in a car crash. And it's not like, you know, you crashed your car and, and you say, hey, brother, don't worry. You're going to get paid out and you're going to get a better car. That's not good. That's not the point. The point is, no, God wills to take this situation of a broken relationship and to make you more like Jesus. That's the point. God wills to take this crash and use it to make you more like Jesus. That's the point. You know, I made this mistake even like two weeks ago. I was talking to someone who lost their job and I said, listen, you know, the Lord will, the Lord never takes away from his kids without giving them something better. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you're going to get a better job, brother. That, that's encouraging, isn't it? But that's not what I should have thought. No, this situation here that the Lord is doing, I'm not sure what kind of job you get. You might not get a better job. You might get a less paying job with a worst boss. I don't know what the Lord is going to do. But the good is that whatever he's going to do, you brother, you sister, you're going to be more like Jesus. And that's encouraging. That's encouraging. God, friends, will take whatever it takes to make us more like Jesus because he says that he uses all things to accomplish that purpose. He has a purpose for us. So we must start with God. We must understand the meaning of all things. We must understand the meaning of good. And finally, I want us to see and understand the limitation to this promise because there is a limitation. This promise is not for everyone. Look with me at verse 28 again. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't stop there. He qualifies that statement when he says to those. And our ears need to perk up and we need to ask who is he referring to? To those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, we, we can't take this phrase and we can you know, put it on our shoes or put it on our refrigerators or put it on the billboard and every single person who drives by on the freeway reads all things work together for good. Great. We, we can't do that. We have no right to do that. Um, all things will not work together for the unbelievers. And that's just, that's just the biblical reality. Those who do not love God, those who do not trust him, those who are not called according to his purpose, the end result of the final, the final goal is not glory. Final goal is not Christ-likeness. It's final separation and eternal damnation. That's not good. He gives us two qualifications here. It's kind of like one coin, but two sides, the human side and then the divine side, right? He looks at the human side first. Do you love God? Then this promise is for you. 
those who love God. It's a description of a believer, not a prescription, a description of a believer, but not a prescription. Paul is not saying, as long as, friends, you really, really, really love God, he will work out everything in your life. Because if he did say that, that's not comforting because I know my heart. I know my heart that I don't really, really, really love Christ a lot of the time. I don't. My love for Christ, it needs to be rekindled. That's why I need to be gathering here, right, in fellowship. That's why we need to be gathering in our life groups. That's why we need to be in God's word constantly. That's why we need to be in prayer so that our love for Christ would be rekindled. But even so, believers are those who love God, even in the midst of trials and struggles, because they are loved by God. In the context here of suffering and trials, perhaps Paul's point here is that for true believers, those, although everything else can be taken away from them in trials and suffering, their love for God cannot be because it is genuinely wrought, brought by the spirit that's been poured out into our hearts. Those who have tasted the love, right? Isn't that what 1 John 4 says? We love because he first loved us. Those who have tasted the love of God through the gospel love him even in the most trying times. Remember Peter. My favorite passages, Peter, just sinned. Just deny the Lord. Not once, not twice, three times says, I don't know him. Not in front of a high priest, but in front of a little girl said, I don't know him. Jesus looks at him, then meets with him after resurrection, and he asks him, the first thing he asks him, Peter, do you love me? And he said three times, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. And God's, Christ's reaction at that point was never to rebuke Jesus. Really? Really, Jesus? Three days ago, he didn't go there. He knew that even in this sin, even in this midst of, he knew that Peter's love You know that I love you. But that's not it. There's a divine side of it. Those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe Paul adds this description so that no one will wrongly think that his own love for Christ is the primary thing. Do you see that? Rather, our love for Christ stems from his sovereign calling us into fellowship with him. When God calls someone, he says those who are called, he draws them to himself by his spirit. And the spirit convicts us of our sin. He points us to Jesus Christ so that we may embrace Jesus Christ as our sin bearer and our source of righteousness. God calls us, and when he calls us, it results in our loving him. God's calling results in our loving Christ. So this promise is not for everyone. Do do you, friend, do you love God? Are you called by God? Then you can take this passage and you can cling to it even when, if you don't know how he's going to work that out. It's yours. Use it as as this, as Spurgeon said, plush pillow upon which you rest your head at night. 
You may not know all the answers, but you know that God has a plan. This promise is for you. But if you don't love God, then it's not too late. You come to the Lord. You come and embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Christ died for sinners, and and he offers you free forgiveness and eternal life with him. It's there. The offer still stands. He does not wish for anyone to perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. And you too can hold on to these promises that somehow he's going to use this in my life to make me look more like Jesus. But here's another just key phrase we need to highlight. He says, and he works all things, right? God causes all things to work together, work together. Um, we get our word synergy from this, this word. It's really, it's a phrase in English, but one word in Greek, synergy. God takes all the various elements in our lives and he puts them together to make this one great impact. Think of like a, a factory conveyor belt, factory conveyor belt, right? Assembly line, all kinds of parts are coming in from various parts of the warehouse, you got the doors, right? You got the hood, you got the engine, you got the tires, you got shafts, you got, you got all kinds of things, right? And they're all there and you have no idea how it all's gonna come together. But at the end of this assembly line, you get a nice brand new car. That's how he works all things together. Or, or, or think of it maybe as your life being like a funnel, like a funnel. And everything in this life it ultimately leads you to becoming like Jesus Christ for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And once again, when we understand that God intends to make us more like Christ than before, we will interpret everything in our life through this grid. Yes, friends, life is difficult, but life is not purposeless. It's difficult, but it's not purposeless. How do we know? Well, the proof of the promise is in the plan of God. The plan of God. And that plan of God is given to us in verses 29 and 30. Five words. Five words that are intended to bring assurance and comfort. Five words that fill us, believers who love God and who are called according to his purpose with great joy so that together we can, after reading these five words, we can cry out and we can say together with Paul, who can be against us? God is for us. Five words. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Lord willing, we'll be back here next Sunday to look at these five words and to try to understand the plan, which is often referred to as God's, the golden chain of our salvation. Friends, this chain is not meant for us to dispute over. It is meant to offer us great comfort and hope. So beloved, everything that happens to us or against us in this world is being worked out in God's great plan. Triumph or tribulation and all things in between are used by God to conform us to become more like 
Jesus Christ. If you love God, friends, if you love God, he's accomplishing that very purpose in you today. And his promise is sure because his purposes are unshakable. No one can tell to God, what are you doing? He accomplishes everything he sets out for his children. So take comfort in knowing that your father who's on the throne, he is actively working. He didn't leave controls. He's very much involved to make you more like his son. That's a worthy purpose and a great comfort for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this assurance. We do not know how, but we do know what. You work all things out that we would be more like Christ. And so help us, help us now to just run, to love you more, to trust you, to interpret our life, Lord, with this framework in mind, to, Lord, have a long-term perspective, to understand that all things include all things, and to understand that you are right in the middle of it all. You are the author of all things, and you are the perfecter of all things. Bless us, Lord, to be assured in Jesus Christ. Amen.